Beloved, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, and this morning we will consider once again verses 14 and 15. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, and efficacious word. Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word And we'd ask, Lord, that you would sanctify us by your word, for your word is truth. By your spirit, Lord, conform us more and more to the image of your son, the great preacher, the greatest preacher, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Prior to the Apostle Paul's conversion, when his name was still Saul, his chief ambition was to destroy the rapidly expanding Christian church. He constantly breathed out murderous threats against Christians, dragging men and women out of their homes to interrogate and incarcerate them. He even stood approvingly over the execution of James when he was savagely stoned by an angry religious mob. But on the way to Damascus, the murderous Paul had an encounter with the risen Christ, and everything changed. Everything changed. A wretched sinner and a self-righteous persecutor of the church, Paul, when he met Christ, was born again, not through his Jewish identity, uh, not through his works of the law, but by grace, through faith. He was brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. He was made alive in Christ. Consequently, he now possessed a new heart and a renewed mind and will and new affections. And almost immediately, he began preaching the same gospel that he'd been working so hard previously to silence. By a wonderful turn of providence, the primary enemy of the church became a key leader for the church. We never want this to be lost upon us. God saving a man who was to be perhaps the last man on the face of the earth that others thought would be even a Christian, much less uh, one of the main leaders of the early church. Paul's new ambition, therefore, indeed his chief ambition, was to spread the gospel. It was to preach the good news of salvation By grace and to make disciples of Jesus Christ, especially in places where the gospel was unknown. In fact, a place that we'll get to maybe in a couple of years in Romans 15, 
Romans 15, verses 20 and 21, Paul says this, that he makes it his ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and he quotes here from Isaiah 52, verse 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. End quote. Dear ones, Paul's chief ambition was to proclaim Jesus Christ to the world. He wanted those who had never been told of him to hear the good news and to understand that there is a way to find peace with God. He wanted his own countrymen, the Jews, to embrace their Messiah. He wanted the Gentile nations to understand the good news that salvation through the Jewish Messiah is not limited to believing Jews, but is for all peoples everywhere. No matter what background, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what level of education, no matter what, that Christ is for everyone. Amen? What a blessing to know this. What an encouragement it is to us. And as we think about Paul's chief ambition, I want to ask us this morning, Christ Church, shouldn't this same missionary ambition and zeal be found in our own hearts? Shouldn't it be found in our own hearts? The fact is, and this is not only true for you, but it's true also for your pastor, is that if our hearts are not compassionate and concerned towards the loss, if we do not find ourselves wanting to share this good news, there is a problem. It's not as if we can just blow this off and say, well, that's just for the missionaries or the pastors or, or for the more sort of hotter sort of Protestants, as the scholars used to call or still do call the Puritans of the 17th century, the hotter sort of Protestants, the zealous ones. Well, they're, they're the ones that do that. I'm just an ordinary Christian. Well, here's the thing. We are all called to be salt and light. We are not all called to be world-famous evangelists. We are all called to be salt and light and to have a heart for the lost, to pray for the lost, to pray for opportunities to share Christ with others. Well, pastor, I just don't feel comfortable doing this. It's, it's, it's hard. I, I, I don't always know what to say. Well, welcome to life as a Christian. It's not easy. It's never easy. Sometimes it's a little easy. Sometimes people just throw you a big softball question, and, whoa, this is amazing. But it's unlikely that will happen uh, very often. And so we, with a heart of compassion, seek to reach out to others, and the very reaching out to others makes our own walk with God more real, more sincere. In fact, a professor of mine said one time in seminary that really impacted me. He said, you know, it is... Christians with warm hearts and zealous hearts are the ones that are sharing their faith. And so may this be true of us. Do we believe this to be true? Are we, are we, do we have this ambition to share Christ with, with the world? There are so many who still have yet to hear a clear gospel message. There are so many who have never heard the good news and thus remain in spiritual darkness. There are so many who have no access to faithful gospel preaching. It is heartbreaking 
to be in a place like Germany where there was such fervor and glory and joy surrounding the ministry of the gospel in the 16th and 17th century and now for it to be such a wasteland. While spending time last week with pastors from Germany and Switzerland, I was reminded of this. Uh, Western Europe is a spiritual wasteland. There is a famine of faithful preaching. There are some areas of Germany where if you live in that area, it will take you two to three hours to drive to a church where the gospel is being preached. That is no exaggeration. That is the level of the need. There's a famine of faithful preaching in Western Europe. Indeed, very few have access to true gospel preaching. And the percentage of Bible-believing Christians hovers at around 1 to 2%. 1 to 2%. The rest are lost. Moreover, believe it or not, there are still areas of the world where the gospel has yet to be preached, where the Bible has yet to be translated. Therefore, the need for faithful gospel preachers and preaching is great. And the need has always been great. And it remains great. You remember Jesus saying to his disciples at the end of Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest. How often are we praying that God raise up gospel preachers to go into the world to preach the gospel? We are commanded to pray for this. We are commanded to pray for laborers to preach the gospel in the Lord's harvest of souls. It's His harvest. Send out laborers into His harvest. It's the sovereign Lord's harvest of souls. God will save His elect. No one will stop God from saving His elect and carrying out His eternal plan. That's what Paul, of course, was highlighting in Romans chapter 9, that God's purpose of election will stand. But here in chapter 10, we are taught that God's purpose of election is not realized apart from objective means, but through them, the objective means of preaching that He Himself appointed The means through which God's purpose of election will be realized is the preaching of the gospel. God's undeserving elect are drawn to Christ through the preaching of the gospel. So faith is not created by the works that we do, but through the gospel that we hear. Faith is not created by the works that we do, but by the gospel that we hear. That's why it's a terrible thing to go overseas in the name of Christ and Christian mission and do all kinds of of works of mercy and to not preach the gospel. Because faith is not created through the doing of good works. It is created through the preaching of the gospel. God's God works through secondary means to save sinners and ordinarily not apart from them. And it's with this in mind that we again come to our text for this morning. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Now let me pause here for a moment and say this. 
that, yes, the primary application of the Great Commission is for ordained servants, ordained pastors. Why do I know that? Well, the Great Commission says to go forth into all the world and make disciples. What's the next word? Baptizing them. And then later it says, and teaching all that I've commanded. Okay, so what does that sound like to you? Someone who's baptizing and teaching all that Christ commanded. Sounds like a pastor, right? Full time. No one's expecting you to carry out the Great Commission in that way as someone who is laboring in whatever vocation God has called you to. So the primary application is to the apostles and and to those, of course, later who are ordained servants. We baptize, we make disciples, we preach all that Christ commanded. But here's the thing. There's, There's more than just that primary application. There's secondary application, which is that the church is to be faithful and committed to carrying out this great commission. Part of that is making sure that the gospel is being faithfully preached in your own pulpit as well as in other places. So we pray for and we support the work of gospel mission, but then also we understand it's by us ourselves being faithful witnesses in the sphere that God and his sovereignty has placed us into. So what we are talking about this morning and what Paul is emphasizing here in verses 14 and 15 is not to say there's no place for gospel evangelism by lay people. Some come to that conclusion. Some come to that conclusion, uh, even within our own tradition. Some come to that conclusion that, that lay people don't need to evangelize. That's just the work of, of the church, the workers, the pastors, the elders. But that's not what this is saying at all. This is focusing on this primary application of the Great Commission that there would be preachers preaching this gospel everywhere in the world and making disciples. Well... Last time we were together, we spent some time exploring, you remember, the context of these verses. We learned that in verses 14 and following, Paul was giving further consideration to Israel's unbelief, this problem of Israel's unbelief, and also why the Gentiles were flooding into the church. Why is it that so many uh, in Israel were rejecting the gospel and so many Gentiles were, were receiving and believing this gospel? And Paul's seeking to explain this through explaining the doctrine of election and the doctrine of faith and calling upon the name of the Lord and through these secondary means of preaching. He sought to explain that despite Israel's spiritual privileges, a large majority of Israel rejected the promised Messiah. And despite the privileges, the spiritual privileges, the lack of spiritual privileges of the Gentiles, a large number of them were being saved. So, In verses 14 and 15, Paul, you'll notice, raises four rhetorical questions. Four rhetorical questions. And then he quotes from Isaiah 52, 7. The reason that he asked these questions was not only to underscore the necessity of gospel preaching for the salvation of sinners, but also to make the point that Israel was actually blessed with gospel preachers throughout their history. But most didn't listen to them. Most rejected the prophets and their saving message. The majority of Israel did not call upon the name of the Lord. Only a remnant did. Only a remnant did. That's why it says in verse 21, if you'll notice there, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
We're going to spend more time, God willing, next week unpacking verses 16 through 21. But today, as promised, I want to spend a little time looking at verses 14 and 15 in, its, in the sense of which it, it demonstrates the centrality and necessity of gospel preaching in the mission of the church. And so my prayer this morning is that we as a congregation would think a little more deeply about not just preaching in and of itself, but what God is doing through preaching, what God is doing through preaching. And so the first point is this, my first point is this, the greatest need today in the church and in the world is faithful gospel preaching. It's the greatest need. It's the greatest need today in the church and the world. What, Pastor, really, I mean, think of all that's going on in the world today. Are you serious? Really, gospel preaching is the, is the greatest need for the church and the world today? Well, the answer is yes, it is. We need God's word. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Paul has just finished explaining uh, in the previous verses here that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. How then, Paul asks, will one call upon the name of the Lord if he or she has never heard the gospel? How can a person believe in their heart and confess with their mouth faith in Jesus if they've never heard of him? How will they hear without someone preaching the good news to them? Beloved, Faithful preaching has always been the church and the world's greatest need. Why? Why? Because through it, Christ and his saving message are communicated to sinners. Because through it, Christ and his saving message are communicated to sinners. Through the gospel word or message, the Holy Spirit saves Sinners. It's what Paul was declaring at the outset of Romans. And Luther, in the days of the Revolution, he recovered this word-centered foundation of gospel ministry. You know, in the days of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, there was no preaching going on. It was all about the sacrament and the sacrament and we didn't understand what was going on, and there was no preaching. And so what happened in the days of the Protestant Reformation was faithful preaching was repentant. Ulrich Zwingli in, uh, uh, in Zurich, Switzerland, in the 1520s, set aside uh, the ordinary liturgy, and he began preaching through books of the Bible. This was... This was done back like in the 4th century with Chrysostom. But, but since, it had been centuries since people had preached verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so um, Zwingli starts doing this, and he starts writing his friends all around Europe who are other people that were embracing the Reformation, and they began doing the same thing. 
And so interestingly, as you follow the preaching patterns of various prominent reformers around Europe in the 1520s and 1530s, they were all preaching through the same books. They were all sort of doing the same thing. And uh, they were getting back to preaching because people didn't have this, and particularly in their own language. And, and so they were re- recovering a, th- a theology of the word. What is happening when preaching is happening? Well, Romans 1, 16 and 17, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. What is the power of God for salvation? It's the gospel. How does the gospel come to us? Through preaching. It's the good news. And so we are not ashamed of the gospel because and for that gospel is the power of God. What's the power of God? It's the gospel. What's the gospel? It's the message that is proclaimed from the church to the world. It's the operative power of God. It's it's God working. And so, so preaching is not merely an information dump of facts and figures from Scripture. It is, as God's good news is going forth of Christ and His saving work and His truth, the Spirit of God is working in the hearts and minds of His people. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25. Listen to what Peter writes. Since you, he's writing to the church, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable Through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word was the good news that was preached to you. So you see how this is working here. The word is living. It's active. It's abiding in the hands of the spirit. And as that word goes forth, Christ, if it's being faithfully preached, the gospel is going forth. Christ is being communicated to God's elect, and he is drawing them to himself through this preached word. And so one doesn't need to be a homiletics professor to recognize that this kind of preaching is at a low ebb in our own day around the world and even in our own context Indeed, in many quarters of the evangelical church, biblical preaching has been replaced by therapeutic counsel, by motivational speeches, by moralistic pep talks. In these contexts, Scripture has become a launching pad for the pastor's ideas and not the life-giving word. And so, in the face of so many unsettling things occurring in our present-day context, we must recognize that the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is our greatest need. More than a great president, we need great preaching. More than brilliant scientists who can find a cure for cancer, the world needs faithful preaching that will faithfully communicate the cure for sin. More than warriors for social justice, we need preachers who will preach the God of justice and the King of grace. More than a comfortable life in the suburbs, we need preaching that will challenge us and shape us into mature disciples of Jesus Christ, who are heartily willing and ready to be God's witnesses in the world at any cost. More than world peace, we all need the peace of Christ. And so, friends, the, 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 the gravitas and priority of preaching 
in the worship and mission of the church needs to be recovered in our day. And it's not only in broad evangelical churches this is true, but also in our own Reformed churches, where preaching sometimes, sometimes is informed more by sociology than biblical exegesis. And where the impulse to accommodate cultural trends and movements prevails over the countercultural and counterintuitive preaching of the Word of God. You know, there's this thought that, and, and it, becomes, it can become a very worldly thing as well. We have this idea where if we are just sort of like the world, then they'll understand us better and then we can reach the world. You see how it works, right? If, if we just are sort of like the world and we, we, we adopt some of the trends of the world and some of our language and our methods and techniques, then they'll understand us better. Maybe they'll like us a little more and then we'll be able to reach them with the gospel. But this goes totally against our understanding of Romans chapter 9. God's glory, his law, the need for gospel. Because God is saving his people and he's doing it according to his gospel and his means. And, and whatever the culture believes, that really is not the issue. The issue is will we be faithful to proclaim that which God says will save his people from, from sin. So that's the first point this morning. The greatest need in the church and the world today is faithful gospel preaching. My prayer for this church is that we would uh, pray for more laborers, that more preachers would be raised up from this congregation, more missionaries would be raised up from this congregation, be sent out, um, that we would be prayerful uh, uh, towards that, that end, and that as a congregation, that we would all recognize that the greatest task of the church uh, is to faithfully proclaim the word of God, because if we don't do it, who will? If we don't do it, who will? Um, so if I get hit by a bus uh, later this afternoon and you have to call a new minister, make sure he is a man who is committed to the authority and inspiration uh, and efficacy of Scripture. Um, and I say that, and I don't say that flippantly. Uh, my dear father in the faith in May was taken. And, uh, and so now their church in, 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 in Birmingham is, is seeking someone who they would call uh, to, to replace him. And, and here's the thing. It's, it's, it's going to be almost impossible to fill his shoes, but I know that this church is going to be committed to calling a man who is committed to preaching the word of God. That needs to be the commitment of every single church. Secondly, Secondly, faith is created and assured through faithful preaching. So my second point is related to the first, and that is that faith is created and assured through faithful preaching. Look at verse 17 with me. After Paul sets forth the essential need for faithful preachers and preaching, he concludes, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Notice these words. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So this is, under, uh, this is so important for our, our understanding of salvation. Faith is not something we are born with, something that lies dormant in our hearts until we exercise it. Some teacher imply this idea that God is just sort of waiting for sinners to exercise uh, an inherent faith, a native faith, so that they can be saved. 
In other words, they initiate a relationship with God by coming to him through faith, and then God responds to them by giving salvation. But this is entirely backward, as we've learned from Romans 9 and 10. It is God who chooses. It is God who initiates. It is God who by his spirit and word makes us alive in Christ, and it is God by his spirit and gospel word who grants us the gift of faith. And so here's the understanding of faith that we must embrace. And if you'll look with me at Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, you'll see the the way that this is explained elsewhere, really a commentary on our text um, that we're looking at now. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. After explaining the, uh, the spiritual depravity of these Christians in Ephesus prior to knowing Christ, he then explains to them what has happened to them. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, now look at this language, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Salvation is not us coming to God. It's not primarily us coming to God. It's God coming to us. And he makes us alive. Notice then it says, And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now here's the the key verse. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith, now notice here, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. Now the question is, how does it come to us? How does it come to us? It comes to us from God as a gift, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are the fruit of faith. We are saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by good works. But faith itself is not something we're born with that then we exercise and then God saves us as a result of our doing faith. That would be a good work. We are saved by grace through faith, and that faith is a gift of God lest any man should boast. And here's the point, as we have here in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. By the word of Christ. And that's not just the red letters. The word of Christ is every word from Genesis to Revelation. And so, we have some helpful Uh, language in Heidelberg Catechism, question 65, where they expound on this idea that's taught to us here in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It says this, since then, faith alone makes us share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does this faith come from? If, If faith alone makes us share in Christ and receive all his benefits, then where does this faith come from? Answer, from the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. Pastor, why do you keep preaching the gospel so much? You know, here we are, uh, we're in sermon 
whatever, 90-something in Romans, and it just seems like we keep turning the diamond just a little bit and, 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 and hearing the gospel again and again and again and, and from a little bit of a different vantage point and where a little different light is being refracted in a different way. And why do we keep doing this? Because, because it creates faith and it sustains and strengthens our faith when we hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice again, where does this faith come from? Heidelberg says, from the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. And then it says, and strengthens it or confirms it by the use of the sacraments. This brings me to my third point. Preaching is God's appointed method and it reinforces the gospel message. Preaching is God's appointed method, and it reinforces the gospel message. So really, if, if you take away anything from the sermon, take this away, that this is God's idea, okay? Preaching is, is God's idea, and also that preaching is not just an information dump or a kind of, you know, lecture that's given uh, in a classroom or... Or, or some kind of a motivational speech given in a high school gym. Like, it's not the same thing because this is the operative power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Through the message, there's something mystical, spiritual, powerful coming from God to us and to our hearts when there is the preaching of the Word of God. When the Word of God is read, when it is preached, God is at work in the hearts and minds of his people. But thirdly, preaching is God's appointed method and it reinforces the gospel message. We learned that last, last time that God's sovereign purpose of election in no way negates or undermines preaching and evangelism. Many, will re, again, will respond to teaching on election by saying, uh, if this is true, if God is sovereign, and he's chosen some and not all before the foundation of the world. And what's the use of preaching and evangelism? Isn't God just going to save anybody anything? Well, uh, the answer is because God not only ordains the ends of salvation, but also the means to those ends. He ordains both. And the means to the ends of salvation of his elect is preaching. And I praise God for this because this means that what I'm doing is not just going to be in vain. I wake up and am able to preach with confidence because I know God is at work through it. His word says it is. If I didn't have the promises of election, I would say, goodness, this may be all for naught. Not another person in the whole world may be saved um, through his preaching. I know that there will be because God has promised that there will be. Uh, and so, again, this first head of doctrine, Article 3 of the Canons of Dort, says this, and that man may be brought to believe... God mercifully sends the messengers of these most holy tidings to whom he will and at what time he pleases, by whose ministry men are called to repentance and faith in Christ crucified. And to whom are these joyful tidings meant to be proclaimed? Where is the church commanded to send missionary pastors to preach the gospel? Again, they say this, quote, The promise of the gospel is that whosoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be declared and published to all nations and to all persons everywhere and without distinction to whom God, out of his good pleasure, sends the gospel. 
This is the most important thing. The spreading of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. As I mentioned before, from our finite human perspective, we do not know who will believe this gospel. Thus, we freely and joyfully announce that whoever believes this gospel will be saved. Whoever believes this gospel will not perish but have everlasting life. And we know that when someone truly believes the gospel, they were predestined to do so before the foundation of the world. The whosoever believes, the, the free offer of the gospel through preaching and evangelism, is not compromised in any way by God's sovereign grace. In fact, the preacher's invitation to believe would be empty without this sovereign grace. There'd be no power to raise people who are spiritually depraved to everlasting life. And so, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we have a key text on this point. Paul here in 1 Corinthians is trying to show the great contrast between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Showing that the wisdom of the world is actually foolishness. And that the foolishness of preaching is actually the wisdom of God. Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice that language again. It is the power of God. The word of the cross, the gospel word, the word about Christ, the Son of God, coming to this world, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life according to the law, and then being nailed to a wooden cross, a Roman cross, and suffering and dying for us, taking upon himself the very punishment that we deserved, and then paying the wages of sin by dying and going into the grave. That is the power of God unto salvation, that message, that truth, what Christ has done for us, and his rising from the dead. And then he says in verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. This message was just as unpopular or more unpopular in the first century than it is today. And yet this is what they did. And Paul is giving an explanation for why. Because this is God's appointed means. It is through the folly of preaching that he will save those who believe. This is the good news. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the what? The power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. For many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. And so preaching is God's appointed means of salvation. It's not flashy. It's not adorned with glitter and glory. It's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be. We don't need to dress it up. This is God's good news. This is His gospel, which comes to the ear. It comes to the ear. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. What's the word of Christ? It's the word of the cross. What's the word of the cross? It's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Now, think of it this way. You're invited to a meeting with an attorney. And you've been told that you had this long-lost uncle that you didn't even know was around, but uh, this uncle had left you something. You're thinking, wow, okay, this sounds interesting. And so you go and you sit, and he says, well, I have some good news for you. This uncle that you were estranged from, that you didn't know because of this situation or that, has left you $20 million dollars. Okay, by the way, if that happens, make sure you tithe to Christ Church Presbyterian, okay? <laughs> so you, you, you get this news. Would your first reaction be, I deserve this? I've worked for this. Of course I'm getting $20 million. This, this is what I deserve. No, you wouldn't think that. You would think, that is amazing. You've just heard this news. It's gone from the mouth of the attorney into your ears, and you have done nothing to deserve it. All you have done is you realize nothing. You've just heard it. You've heard the news. And so the, the preaching of the gospel, it's reinforcing the very message of the gospel that you and I can do nothing to save ourselves. We hear good news of what Christ has done by grace through faith, which is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Faith, which is created in our hearts by the Spirit through the very word that's being preached to us, this good news. We believe this news. We receive this good news. We rest in this good news. And it reinforces the message that it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Oh, the grace of God, the display of God's saving power in the light of our weakness. Cornelis Venema says this, quote, The foolishness of the preaching of the cross is God's preferred means to display his wisdom, to confound the wise, and to demonstrate his power. God's power is made perfect through weakness, and nowhere is this point is this more evident than in God's chosen method for gathering and nourishing his people in the Christian faith. And so this is why Paul, as the executioner's sword is hovering above him, and he writes his final letter to Timothy, says this to Timothy, and some of his final written words. 
I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. In season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Beloved, we must all have a high regard for preaching. It's God's appointed means, never done perfectly never done as it perfectly ought to be done. But when we hear preaching, we should come with expectation that God is going to use this to transform us more and more into the image of his son. As we hear the gospel, let us believe the gospel, rest in the gospel, receive the gospel, glory and boast in the gospel. And this is that which we hear, not just you know, in, a, in a time when we get converted, but our entire lives because it's through this gospel that he sanctifies us and makes us more like his son. So what is our great ambition as a church? May it be that we be faithful to preach this gospel and to share this gospel in the midst of our friends and coworkers and neighbors and relatives, and that we would pray for laborers to be raised up and sent out to proclaim this gospel to the world. For their is a great harvest. That's the Lord's harvest. And the laborers are few. Let us pray. Our Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the preciousness of this good news which we hear. And, and Lord, uh, we read in Romans 10 that uh, there is a need for gospel preachers. And uh, we pray, Lord, that there would be more raised up, even from this very church, for your glory. And we pray that we all would have a heart and compassion for the lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.